I, I do a podcast. I'm not, I'm not interested in your podcast. The anathema of God was for those who denied justification by faith alone. When that is at stake, we need to be on the battlefield exposing the air and combating the air. We are unabashedly, unashamedly Clarkian. And so the next few statements that I'm going to make, I'm probably going to step on all of the Vantillian toes at the same time. And this is what we do at Simple Reform on the radio, you know. We are polemical and polarizing Jesus style. I would first say that to characterize what we do as fashion is itself fashion. It's not hate, it's history, it's not fashion, it's the Bible. Jesus said, Woe to you, and men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way, as opposed to, Blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It is on. We're taking the gloves off. It's time to battle. Welcome back, everyone, to another uh, episode of Semper Reformanda Radio. This is your host, Carlos, joining you uh, with uh, Steve Matthews, a very special guest, Steve Matthews, from the Radio Lux Lucid podcast. And um, I've really been looking forward to this interview. Um, we're going to talk about some of his publications and his book, Imagining a Vain Thing. And um, I was, it was kind of a, a bummer because we had done this interview a while back, but we had some sound quality uh, issues come up and we we just haven't been able to redo the recording until up until now so i'm very excited and looking forward to um getting to st uh, talk to brother steve about his book and some of the things in it and so without further ado i wanted to welcome you to the party and if you could introduce yourself to our audience Carlos, yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Today. I'm really excited to be here with you. And yeah, we had that uh, that uh, interview you and I did a little while back, and it ended up that uh, <laughs> as you said, we had some uh, some sound quality issues. So Lord willing, we'll be able to yeah. to get through this. Uh, so yeah, it's it's great to be here. So I really look forward to having a chance to talk to you. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a privilege to have you on with us, and I'm really grateful for your uh, for you know for you joining the network and having your your excellent podcast um you're pretty much one of my main sources that i go to for uh getting a christian perspective on you know what's happening in the news and politics and economics and so i'm very grateful for your podcast and for um your book as well and your articles that you've uh, written have been very uh, very edifying personally for me so i'm really excited to uh, get uh introduce people to you and to some of your publications uh so that they can also benefit from um from them and so the basically the topic of our um, interview is going to be your book um called imagining a vain thing uh, yeah. and the subtitle is the decline and fall of knox seminary and this was published by the trinity foundation let's see back in when was this um was that 2008 2008 that's right yeah okay so um um i i read this book and I enjoyed it very much. I learned a ton from this book. I was very 
um, very pleased with it, very surprised by a lot of the, the, the subject matter. And so I was just wondering if you could kind of give some of your, in the book, why you wrote it and things like that. Sure, sure, yeah. Well, one of the, the things I, I think that, that really motivated me to, to write that was just, <laughs> well, I, I, I can tell you, um, I, I went down, I attended Knox Seminary in the, uh, the fall of 2006, so the fall semester 2006 is when I went down there, which hard to believe was uh, over 12 years ago at this point. And um, hmm. I, I went, the thing that really motivated me to go there, uh, Robert Raymond, well, there are, there are a couple of, of main reasons. I wanted to study with Robert Raymond. And I wanted to study with Cal Beisner, um, both of whom were, you know, had done work with the Trinity Foundation. And I, I very much admired John Robbins' work and the Trinity Foundation. Um, and you know, of course, both of them were were Clarkians. Uh, you know, there are men who, right. or or at least you know, men who admired Gordon Clark. Maybe let's put it that way. And they were were men who, uh, you know, I think were logically sound in their thinking. And one of the things that really impressed me about Knox was they put a strong emphasis on logic. You know, most seminaries these days don't do that. You know, for most seminaries, you know, logic is if it's included at all. I mean, it's kind of a uh, uh, an elective is kind of something off to the side, but I mean that was really central. It was really core to uh, to the Knox mission, to the Knox uh, degree program, and that that really intrigued me. So anyway, I went down there, and um, I had a, had some concerns before I went there because of some things that Knox had on the website. They had this thing by uh, by the Old Testament professor Warren Gage. It was called the John Revelation Project, but and I thought to myself, well, you know, it's it's the seminary that that has, in my opinion, the best teachers, and maybe there's going to be some things that I don't agree with, but I'll, I'll go there and, and we'll see what happens. So uh, I went down there, and as I said, in the fall of 2006, and there were some very good things about Knox, um, but there were some things that, that very much concerned me about Knox, and principally that that thing was. Uh, the teaching of of Warren Gage and yeah I remember we had uh, a convocation uh, ceremony before the whole semester started and you know and, and everyone all the professors got up and they said oh yeah you know we're we're going to teach according to Westminster standards and we're going to be uh, you know adhere to these things well you got into class with with Warren Gage and I mean almost from the very moment. <laughs> We sat down in class. He started attacking the Westminster standards. Uh, you know, with mm. with him, you know, it, you know, of course, you know, the Westminster standards are very clear. You know, that that we know we, you know, what we know from scriptures, what we know about God, what we know about you know Christian doctrine, comes from the express statements or the the necessary inferences that that we get out of the the statements in scripture. Right. And 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 he immediately began attacking these sorts of things and, and teaching a, an interpretive uh, method that was really more Roman Catholic medieval than it was reformed. Um, and uh, long story short, without going to, you know, to, you know, too far into this, um, I ended up leaving after the first semester and on my way back. Uh, to Cincinnati. I'm from Cincinnati, so I was down there in Fort Lauderdale. I actually put all my stuff in a, a U-Haul uh, truck and got a trailer and hitched my car up to it. <laughs> Drove back That's to Cincinnati. A long trip. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a pretty good haul. And the uh, I actually broke it up into two days. And and the second day, the my trip actually took me 
through uh, Eastern Tennessee, which is where John Robbins was living. So I had made an arrangement to go talk to John Robbins. And then we sat and talked for about three hours uh, at his, uh, oh, in his wow. cool. yeah, in, in his study. And, and uh, anyway, um, when the meeting concluded, you know, he, he had asked me, I, I was afraid he was going to do this. <laughs> I'm glad he asked me, but I was afraid he was going to do it. He says, well, how about you write something on this? And, uh, and, and so that was really the genesis of the book. It was, was, uh, it was John Robbins prompting me to, uh, to write that. So, so that's, that's kind of in a nutshell how I came to write the book. So had you met Robbins prior to that point? I had not. No, that was the first time I had met him. Now he and I had corresponded a little bit via email. Um, okay. that was the, yeah. that was the first time I ever met him in person. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Maybe someday, uh, some other day we can schedule another um interview to talk to your interactions with robbins and um that uh, yeah, that would be great i think because um oh, you know to. a lot of people have a yeah a lot of people have very bad information and and just kind of caricatures of who he really was so yes um that would be fun to do sometime yeah. in the future as yeah, well yeah yeah i'd love to do um and I wanted to ask you, what what was your motives for for attending seminary to begin with? Like, were you pursuing pastoral office, or or what was the intent there? Yeah, um, my my basic thought was uh, to study for the ministry. So I mean, that, that's really what okay was my what my motivation was at the time. And and did. So I think now you said you have a, a your a retirement plan or something like that. So you're not yeah. really. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. 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 I'm in a totally different line of work right now. I work uh, in, in retirement <laughs> plans. I do administration for 401k plans at uh, for an insurance company. So, yes, it has nothing to do um, with, uh, with with anything seminary related, <laughs> you know, and, and, and Lord willing, you know, who knows? I mean, you know what? What I've been doing here is, as you mentioned in the introduction, I've been doing some um you know, some blogging, uh, doing and now doing some podcasting, especially right. since, since you and Tim have been urging me to do this and I'm glad that you have. Um, so hmm. I've been, been, you know, that, that's kind of been where, you know, my ministry work has been. And of course I've been doing, uh, over the past year, uh, Trinity foundation radio, um, as well doing podcasts for the, the Trinity foundation. Um, but I have not been involved yeah. in, you know, full-time ministry at this point. No. Okay. Yeah. Um, interesting. So, you know, and I was gonna, I, I was gonna joke about this because in the book it was really funny. You you mentioned that you were a Reformed Baptist, uh, but then I recently heard again that you are a Presbyterian now. So yes. what happened? What happened there? <laughs> well, let's see. I, I I actually went over. I joined the the church where where I attend right now, which is a Presbyterian church. I did that back in 2011. Um, you know, it was just okay. for me. You know, and um, I mean, it, it was something that, that for me over time that really just kind of grew in my conviction that that that's what the Lord had called me to do, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, that, that's where I felt most at home theologically was as a Presbyterian. Okay. And it's like a PCA, o OPC or? It is actually, no, it is. Uh, it's, it's, it's something that probably a lot of people haven't heard of. Um, it's called the Bible Presbyterian Church. I have. I think Pastor Hines used to be exactly. in those. Yes, Pastor yeah. Hines. But no, well, in fact, Pastor Hines, he was the associate minister at my church before he oh, got his wow. current position. So yeah, so he and I have a small world. We know each other. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Cool. Very cool. 
Yeah, we were jo we were joking about it with uh, some of our other because obviously we've had you know the Reformed Baptist Presbyterian debate with uh, Brandon Adams and Pastor Hines and had a lot of really interesting uh, episodes about uh, baptism that really interesting episodes that have kind of forced me to think about this a little bit more carefully and uh, we were joking. I was joking with Tim about how you drank the Pedo Baptist Kool Aid, and we're gonna try to see if we can <laughs> win you back over to the to the truth. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it was it was an interesting uh, comment because part of your the your your defense for writing the book or against accusations is that you said you were Reformed Baptist and you didn't really have a I guess like a a, a bone to pick in the fight, right? So um, so that was that was interesting. Um, so I I wanted to. Right, I want to jump into the 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 book. Yeah, and I I wrote a little review. I gave you five stars on uh, Goodreads. It was an excellent book. I really enjoyed reading the book, well, and um, I really heartily yes, and I heartily without reservation rec recommend it to our listeners to to read it. It's a very fascinating book. You will learn a great deal from it, and um, the uh, the theology that you're criticizing is horrendous, but. Um, what the what you're defending was outstanding, so I really appreciated your book for that. Um, and I read a short, I wrote a short review, and this is what I uh, what I said here. So it's called. Um, I said this expose by a former Knox student demonstrates how neglecting the historical grammatical hermeneutic of the Reformation leads to all sorts of fanciful fanciful eisegesis and ultimately heresy. A case in point is Warren Gage, the John Revelation Project, and the controversy surrounding the medieval hermeneutics he taught at Knox Theological Seminary. It's a shame when such fiascos in Reformed institutions are not resolved biblically. Very informative and insightful book, and I learned new things about Reformed her hermeneutics, including an enlightening discussion about typology. So um, yeah, I thought it was an excellent book. So why don't we, um, now that we've kind of set up the groundwork, uh, why don't we talk about um, your, you know, who is Warren Gage? Who are these people? Warren Gage, Fowler sure. White, um, who are they? Okay, yeah, okay, very good, uh, good question. Warren Gage, he, you know, as you mentioned, uh, and, and as we kind of talked about earlier, Warren Gage, he was the, at the time, he was the Old Testament professor at Knox Seminary. Um, and, and he was, he's a very charismatic. Now, when I use the term charismatic, I don't mean in terms of speaking in tongues, that type of thing. But he was somebody that um, he could be very, engaging, I guess, if you will, pun intended, um, mm -hmm. in, in terms of his personality. <laughs> uh, very smart. Yeah, he was was actually, by profession, he was a uh, was a lawyer. And, and so he was oh. very good at speaking publicly, uh, very good with words, very uh, persuasive in many ways. Um, and, and he wrote, he, his educational background was, was actually, I mean, he was, was a Presbyterian, but he got his doctorate from the University of Dallas, which from the sound of it may not necessarily uh, tip you off, but that's actually a Roman Catholic school. Uh, right. and, yeah. and he was, was very Roman Catholic in, in his teaching, uh, in his thought process. You know, so he was, you know, he was almost a, a, a Roman Catholic in, in, in Presbyterian clothing. I mean, he wasn't officially a Roman Catholic, mm. but much of what he taught um, was, was had, a, had a Roman Catholic cast to it. And, and he was wow. very much into typology. And I mean, one of the things I remember he said in class, and maybe this would kind of give listeners sort of a sense of where he was. I remember one time he says, well, you know, you need logic, um, but you need imagination too. He was always talking about imagination. 
You had to use your poetic imagination. So when you read the Bible, you had to use imagination and intuition. Uh, you know, the, those are not hermeneutical categories that are recognized uh, by the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, that is, however, mm -hmm. um, the sort of thing that is very common in, uh, in, in Roman Catholic circles, uh, you know, especially like the sort of medieval mysticism um, that, that a lot of people like. And he wrote this John Revelation project, um, and, and it's, it's a little hard to, to get into it in, in, in great detail, but he, he tried to draw, the, there was a, a literary connection between these two, these two, uh, these two books. And, and it was, again, it was, it was really the conclusions that he drew were not based upon uh, express statements in scriptures or logical inferences of scriptures, but they were based upon literary structures and imagination. And as you can probably guess, that can lead you into, you use the term asegesis, you know, reading into the text, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, he, he, it, it lets people read into the text uh, pretty much whatever they want to do. And, you know, these, you know, he presented these ideas at a couple of, on a number of different occasions at, at public um, seminars that were held at Knox Seminary. Uh, before that, before I got there, but he presented these ideas in, in public seminars, and and his 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 ideas were put out there on the website. They called it the Knox website. They called it the John Revelation Project. Um, and his, like I say, not only were his conclusions not reformed, uh, but his method was not reformed. You know, as I said, instead of using plain statements, logical inferences, comparing scripture to scripture. Um, he was was reading into scripture um, his own ideas, and, and this uh, created major problems. And he also had persuaded some of the faculty to go along with him. You know, so you know, Warren Gage was kind of the, the the key figure in this whole thing. He was the the ringleader, if you will. Um, the whole John Revelation project was really based on his his doctoral dissertation. So he was the guy that was really driving this whole idea that that we have to interpret the Bible using our imaginations. But he pulled a lot of other people along with him. You, know, you, you asked me about Fowler White. Fowler White was the dean of faculty at the time. And he was also the professor of New Testament when I was there as well. Uh, interestingly enough, um, Fowler White and Warren Gage had a relationship that went back many years. Uh, Warren Gage was the older of the two by probably about 10 years or so. And I believe okay. if, if I'm, I'm going by some memory here, but my understanding is that way back when uh, Fowler White was a teenager, that uh, Warren Gage was, uh, I don't know if he was a youth minister or a youth leader, but they went to the same church. And I think that, that, that you know, Fowler White sort of looked up to Warren Gage, maybe as an elder brother in Christ type of a thing. Um, and, and of course, by the time when I was at Knox, uh, you know, Fowler White, he had a, he had a, a doctorate as well. I mean, he was a professor there and he was a, a Westminster Seminary graduate. But I mean, I think, you know, he looked up to Warren Gage and I think to a large degree um, was really pulled along by Warren Gage. And he actually taught a lot of uh, Warren Gage's material or ideas that were inspired by Warren Gage in his New Testament class. So not only was I getting Warren Gage in Warren Gage's class, I was getting Warren Gage in, 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 uh, in Fowler White's class as well. Um, and I'm going to say something here in, in Fowler White's defense as well. And this is kind of an interesting thing. Um, 
I left seminary. I was only there one semester. I was there in the fall of 2006. And I could kind of see one of the, one of the reasons I left is because I could kind of see where the school was going. The school was was being pulled along after Warren Gage, and I realized, you know, this is is not a direction that that I thought was healthy for the school, and it wasn't something I really wanted to continue to be a part of. And so it's one of the reasons that I left. Not the only reason, but it was one of them. Well, in at the end of the 2006-2007 academic year, so about six months after I left, a graduating student made a complaint to Fowler White because Fowler White was dean of faculty, and said, you know, the, the Gage is teaching a lot of stuff in class that's you know, maybe not really very reformed, which was the case. Uh, and and Fowler White, to his credit, and I think he deserves credit for this, um, over the summer uh, spent a lot of time listening to classroom recordings, um, basically led an investigation and concluded that, yes, you know, that Warren Gage was teaching doctrines that were, uh, you know, that were against the Westminster Confession. Uh, and I was kind of surprised at that because I didn't, you know, more, you know, Fowler White was very much someone who was, uh, as I said, followed Warren Gage quite a bit. But to, like I say, to Fowler White's credit, um, he actually, at some point, you know, finally said, you know, this stuff's gone too far. Enough is enough. Um, he, of course, he ended up paying for it with his job too, unfortunately. Um, but but to that extent, you know, to the extent that he uh, was willing to criticize Warren Gage eventually, um, too late, unfortunately, but he did criticize him. He ended up paying for it with his job. Okay, so, yeah, thank you for setting up the background there. And you attended the seminary, like, in, was it 2006? Or... Yeah, mm -hmm, yeah, it was fall, of 2000, fall semester 2006. That's when I was there. Um, interestingly okay. enough, that, that actually coincided right with the uh, the very end of D. James Kennedy's ministry. Um, for those people who right. aren't familiar with Knox, you know, Knox was uh, actually literally right across the street from uh, from Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church uh, there on Federal Highway in Fort Lauderdale. That's right. And and it was actually under the the session of uh, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. It was almost a little bit. Of, you might think of it as as an extension. Uh, of Coral Ridge itself, and uh, yeah, and the G yeah, D. James Kennedy was still preaching there. And over over the Christmas break, uh, right at the end of December, he had uh, some some very serious health problems, and he was no longer able to uh, to fill the pulpit after that. Uh, and uh, he passed away. Uh, D. James Kennedy did in uh, in August of two thousand seven. So I was there really the last few months of his uh, his long and, and, and well known ministry. Interesting. So um, you mentioned the John Revelation Project, and I guess that was uh, sort of the thesis of uh, Warren Gage's work. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't been I've, I haven't been a Christian for that long. I guess it's been about maybe 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I guess for most of that time now, uh, I've been more involved in the reform world, been more reformed by conviction. And to be honest, I've never heard of this before. I'd never really heard of this, this problem, this issue, this controversy before. And I'm not exactly, you know, Tim and I, we're not, well, we're not Presbyterian, but we do stay, we do try to stay informed as to what's going on in the, you know, in the reform world, because that's what we are, we agree with, we agree with it. And for the most, in, in a lot of ways, and 
um, and we we do research and things like that. But I had never come across this before prior to reading your book, and I was uh, might be the case for some of our listeners as well. So if you could for uh, explain for us what is, what exactly is the John Revelation Project? Sure. Yeah. As I said, it's it, it's kind of. I think maybe to, to kind of encapsulate, I mean, I, I could go in and, and maybe get into a lot of the weeds on it, but maybe more just kind of a high-level answer for it, it uh, high-level answer to you. It is, it, it's a project that is, it, it's, it's an attempt to interpret the book of Revelation using um, literary structure and imagination rather than using the the tools uh of of logic that are that are outlined for us in the westminster confession uh, the you know as, as we've already talked about you know the the idea of the westminster confession you know talks about um using uh the express statements of scripture or the good and necessary consequences or another way of talking about good and necessary consequences is to say good and necessary inference um comparing right. scripture to scripture you know, um, going in and comparing different passages of scripture, you know, well, what do these things say? You know, how can we reconcile these things logically? And, you know, instead of using those things, uh, you know, Warren Gage's approach to trying to talk about revelation was to, uh, like I say, to use literary structures and, and to use imagination. I mean, literally, he would talk about using, you know, you have to, to, to have a poetic imagination. That was, uh, or something that he would talk quite a bit about in class. And, and uh, you know, poetic imagination is simply another mm -hmm. way of saying that. It's just making stuff up. It's just, yeah, I mean, he, I remember, you know, one time, <laughs> it, it literally, I mean, that, that's what that is. Uh, one time in class, he even said, you know, he says, I can't defend this stuff, you know, logically. Wow. Um, and, and I thought that was a pretty extraordinary thing for him to say. I mean, it's yeah, it's 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 a form of irrationalism. Maybe that's a, a way of talking about it. And and listeners have probably come across this in one way or another, because irrationalism is very, very popular in a lot of so-called reform circles today, whether you reform Baptist, whether you reform Presbyterian, you know, whether someone's a Presbyterian, um, there is a. A, uh, a hatred uh, of, of logic in many circles, you know, and, and Warren Gage just represents really one particular variation on that, that uh, common day hatred of logic that you, that you see nowadays. Right. And that kind of leads into my next question. So um, in terms of its influence, I know you, you, uh, is it, mainly confined to the Presbyterian world um, or to the, the, the seminary, to, to the seminary itself? Or do you see other, like you mentioned, kind of other forms of it or other or its influence in other movements uh, that are more prominent today? Sure. Yeah. Now, the, the John Revelation Project itself, I haven't really seen that quoted or, or um having been influential much outside the the walls of Knox Seminary, kind of interestingly enough, um, just without getting too far afield here, just to give maybe a little bit more history of what happens, I said I was there in the fall of 2006. Well, I mentioned earlier that D. James Kennedy um, passed away. He died in, if my memory serves me correctly, August of 2007. Well, 
this was just as this whole controversy with Warren Gage was coming to a head. And the uh, I, I won't won't get off into to too much of that right now, but the school late and I believe this was late in 2007. They actually took the John Revelation project off the website. Now, I, 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 I went and I, I actually copied it off the website before they were able to do that. So I have a full text of the John Revelation project, but they actually took it down. And so far awesome. as I can tell, they don't publicly put it out there. I, at least I, I haven't seen any evidence of it. Now, I'm not saying that they didn't teach it in class because Warren Gage actually just retired from Knox Seminary back in 2014. Uh, and so he was there for many years you know, after I had left. And, you know, I, I don't know how hard he pushed that stuff specifically in class, but I, I would find it hard to believe that, that he didn't teach some of those ideas, at least some of them, maybe all of them, or maybe some of them. I, I don't know, but it would be kind of odd if he didn't teach at least some of that stuff uh, in class uh, for many years thereafter. So I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those things with, with ideas. Sometimes it takes a while for them to to uh to have an effect you know somebody might teach something now and it, it really doesn't blossom so to speak you know for maybe many decades later um right now i haven't seen a lot of influence yeah. of the john revelation project but i as i said I, I think it's very easy to find that sort of irrationalism that drove warren gage um in in many different areas yeah, Doug, and I well, remember, Doug Wilson's a guy that comes to mind. You know, Doug Wilson's somebody right. that, that that hates logic and is very influential. Right. I remember um, in the book you talk about how there's a connection between uh, the John Revelation Project and Federal Visionist mm -hmm. um, that they they also uh, v valued or or admired the work of of um, Warren Gage. Uh, to some extent. So I remember you talking about that. And right. I guess it's not a surprise because, yeah, they, they do go hand in hand. Um, and some of these points that there is some overlap there. There really and is. So that's, that's a, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and that's like one of the major uh, false teachings plaguing uh, the reform world today. And it's even bleeding over into, you know, it, it's, it's pretty pervasive, uh, you know, given the fact that we're obviously talking about uh, an extended series on John Piper and, just how pervasive this problem is. And so, um, you know, it, it, so I, the, and before, and it's funny because I mentioned that I wasn't really aware of this uh, controversy. I had never really um, come across it. And then interestingly enough, I, I kind of spoke to you soon because I was watching a DVD called The Marks of a Cult. Mm -hmm. um, it's by the same people who produced Amazing Grace, The History and Theology of Calvinism. It was a very good, um, uh, DVD. It's one of my favorite DVDs, actually. I highly recommend it to our listeners. Um, and it was, uh, it's by the Nicene Council, I think, or they also call themselves the Apologetics Group. And they, um, I believed the president was Jerry Johnson, and he had a pretty active ministry and blog a few years back. I don't know if he's still around, but um, I think he went to Knox Seminary as well because he interviews uh, D. James Kennedy um, in the Amazing Grace DVD. And but when I was watching the marks of a cult, uh, sure enough, he had our, I think he had our Fowler white on there. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it, 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 they're definitely, it, this, it, they're out there, you know, it's like, yeah. um, it, it's, it's only just a matter of time 
when this stuff kind of starts to seep in and, and hit you. So, um, so yes, yeah, there's exactly. definitely out there. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think really maybe that for, for most listeners is maybe the biggest lesson to take away from, you know, we talk about the John Revelation project isn't so much just specifically what Gage taught in the John Revelation project, but rather the dangers that come with irrationalism. And there can be a lot of different forms of irrationalism. You know, there, you know, it's, you know, as soon as somebody abandons clear thinking, I mean, he's going to go, there's a million different ways somebody can go with that. You know, and one, one man may go off on one tangent, like Warren Gage, somebody else is going to go off on another tangent, but they all have in common. What they all have in common is the fact that they reject sound logical thinking. And I think that's really the big lesson. Yeah. Yeah, then that makes sense. Um, so now that we're, you know, you mentioned a lot about hermeneutics and, you know, the Westminster Confession. I want to go ahead and read it. Uh, I believe this is chapter one, section nine of the Westminster Confession. It says this, the infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold, but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. So this is a uh, standard, you know, sort of reformed. That's the standard reformed way of doing hermeneutics. Is that correct? Um, there is a uh, you you have to search out scripture with scripture, right? And so, um, and then there's the also the the uh, the the I guess the complement to that is that um, the 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 meaning of scripture. You can deduce. You can either deduce it by the express statements or by or by necessary good and necessary consequence. Mm -hmm. And so, this is a very this is kind of like a sort of a standard way of understanding the Bible that helped the Reformation to recover the gospel and a lot of truths that were lost during the medieval ages. Mm -hmm. And so, um, how and you mentioned the quadriga, and in the book you mentioned the quadriga and also the census plenier. Yes. Uh, method. And so I was wondering if you could talk about those a little bit and compare, you know, kind of compare and contrast them to the sure. to the reform hermeneutic. Sure. It, it, exactly. Um, very good question, Carlos. Uh, it, the you know, you kind of going back to your, the quote there that you had from the um, the Westminster Confession, it, it talked about. You know, that's uh, chapter one, uh, section nine. You know, it talks about, you know, that the meaning of any scripture is one. Now, the, the, the purpose behind that, the, behind the, you know, having that in the confession of faith, that was a denial of what Rome uh, taught and still teaches about, uh, about biblical interpretation. Uh, in, in, uh, in Roman Catholic circles, and this is something that, that began, this, this is really a medieval um, concept. There's something that they called the quadriga. Now, if, if anybody's ever studied Latin, they might recognize that word. Uh, a quadriga is, is a Latin word for a four-horse chariot. Um, it, think of a, a four-horse chariot. As a, a quadriga was kind of like a, a Roman version of a stretch limousine, okay? <laughs> yeah, not everybody had a four-horse chariot. Yeah, that was something only Caesar would have. Now, in, in Maybe yeah. like you've seen, I don't know, there's, uh, you've seen like these triumphal arches and sometimes it'll have a, at the top of it, it'll have, you know, some important person, maybe Caesar, you know, and he's driving a four horse chariot. 
Well, that's a quadriga. That's what that mm -hmm. is. And, and and so that's where this interpretive method takes its name. It takes its name from this four horse chariot. And the reason that they call it a quadriga is because the the Roman Catholic Church taught that every passage of scripture has four different meanings. And I, I apologize. I don't have the I, the uh the, the, those four meanings here in front of me. Um, I've, I've forgotten what those are right now, but they say that each passage has four meanings. There's right, a literal well, meaning, there's a, like an allegorical meaning, uh, etc. Yeah, I can, I, I have the book in front of me and I'm on page 20 where you talk about that so that I could read it. Why don't you go ahead um, and do that? Yeah. Yeah, I can read it and you can uh, comment on it. Um, so, you have a footnote here that says on page 20, in fact, no passage of scripture has more than one meaning. This foolish medieval method is still the, off the official practice of the Roman Catholic Church state. Paragraph 115 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church of 1992 states, according to an ancient tradition, one can distinguish between two senses of scripture, the literal and the spiritual, the latter, be the latter being divided into the allegorical, moral, and anagogical senses. The recent controversy at Knox Theological Seminary cent centering on Professor Warren Gage was to a large extent prompted by allegations that he advocated the use of the quadriga. While a student at Knox Seminary, this writer personally heard Dr. Gage promote the use of something very similar, a hermeneutic principle called the census plenior, Latin for the fuller sense. Like the quadriga, census plenior finds multiple senses in a single passage and, conf and conflicts with both the laws of logic and the confession of faith. Census Plinier, said Dr. Gage, is the basis for his approach to typology. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's just the idea that you can somehow uh, ima yeah, imagine into it. I mean, these were the kinds of words that Warren Gage would use. He would always talk about imagination and intuition. Um, and, and, and that's how you kind of pull out these, these additional meanings of scripture. I mean, you can't get there using logic. You have to be able to, to intuit this stuff somehow. And, and of course, all of this is, you know, his, his cast of mind was very Roman Catholic. And, and maybe that's a, a second big, you know, lesson that we can draw out of, you know, the, the, the whole issue at, at Knox Seminary. We talked about, you know, the John Revelation Project and the hatred of logic. Well, a, a second big lesson we can draw out of it is how influential the Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic teaching has become in many putatively, supposedly, um, uh, conservative uh, reform mm -hmm. circles. I mean, you know, Warren right. Gage was importing Roman Catholicism and attempting to do this in, into, uh, into reform circles with his teaching. You know, and, and this idea somehow that you can read multiple senses uh, into scripture is, is, I think, a very dangerous idea because, as I, as I mentioned, it really lets you Take a take scripture in any direction you want to. It's asegesis, you know. Again, to go back to that uh, that good term that, that you used before, it's reading into the text. It's not reading the text; it's reading into the text. Yeah, right. And that that's helpful. I think is directly, like you said, um, the the confession explicitly says that in order to contrast and refute, go against the medieval. Hermeneutic, and I, um, I earlier alluded to chapter one, section six of the Westminster Confession, which says this: "The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture." 
unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the spirit or traditions of men. So, yeah, you're kind of clearly contrasting the two methods there of interpreting uh, scripture. And I thought that was very helpful. Um, and so given, given that, um, now we're starting to get into the issue of typology. And this is one of the, this is one of my favorite parts of the book, actually, because I learned um, really fascinating uh, material and it, and it actually equipped me to better understand the Bible myself. I was really um, pleased with this, with uh, the, your discussion of typology. I learned, I learned a lot from it. And so one of the main uh, um, concepts that you discuss is called Marsh's dictum. Right. And so I, again, it, it kind of baffles me because I'd never heard this term before. I'd never heard who this person was, what this, what this teaching was about. I had never heard of it, uh, it before. And I'm here, you know, we I've I've been reformed now for some years and the, I've never heard it really being talked about. It's kind of, it, it kind of amazes me because this is a very important concept and it's like almost null and void from everything, all the preaching, the books that I've read, um, it doesn't come up. And so um, if you could please elaborate uh, as to what Marsha's dictum um, means and, and how it's relevant to this controversy. Sure, Carlos. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for, for that. Another very good question there. Well, you know, it's interesting. You say you, you had never heard of Marsha's dictum. Well, you know, before I wrote this book, I never heard of it either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and I yeah. think that I think probably ninety nine percent of our listeners would probably say something uh, similar to that. Yeah, Mar uh, Marsh's dictum. It comes. It's it's named after Herbert Marsh. He was uh, was a nineteenth century, uh, I guess eighteenth nineteenth century uh, um, Church of England uh, fellow, and and he he wrote some on typology and, and the the basic gist, the idea. And I, I quoted Marsh at, at some length in the book, but if you just kind of wanted to kind of get put hit, put Marsh's dictum in a nutshell, um, what Marsh said is that you know we can declare those things types only what the Scripture exp expressly calls a type. Uh, and and I think you know what he was doing is he was really writing in reaction to some of the fanciful typology that a lot of people were pushing in his day. I mean, he lived you know he lived and worked about two hundred years ago, uh, and and so you know people have. You know, typology has long been a subject of, of a lot of speculation. Um, there is a, a guy, he was a, uh, a 19th century Scottish Presbyterian by the name of Fairbairn. And he wrote a big, long book on typology. And I remember when I was researching the, the book, The Imagining a Vain Thing, I actually tried to sit down and read through it. And and it, it was it was almost impossible. I mean, I gave up after a while because it was all it was just very very <laughs> speculative, and and I remember, uh, I, yeah, I actually had a, a little bit of a dialogue with uh, Doug Dalma. Some uh, probably some of our listeners might be familiar with Doug Dalma. He's the one that wrote the uh, the Presbyterian oh, yeah. philosopher, uh, you know, writing on the. Of course, that was a biography of of Gordon Clark, and yeah, and I know Doug said he was trying to read that thing, and, and eventually he. Uh, he mentioned to me, he says, I gave up. <laughs> you know, he abandoned ship. Yeah. yeah, he abandoned ship on the thing. Well, because you get into this, this, this typology, it just becomes so speculative. It's just very, very speculative. So, you know, Warren Gage is not wow. the only guy to get involved in speculative typology. You know, Fairbairn was as well. And, and, and 
and and people were doing the same thing in Herbert Marsh's day. And I think, you know, Herbert Marsh probably had about enough of it. And he said, this is, you know, th this is nonsense. Um, and and the reason what where where Marsh's dictum really came into play in this whole um, issue over Warren Gage. Um, and I talk about this some in the book, just kind of being just discussing this from a high level. You know, I, I mentioned the fact that, that Fowler White had conducted an investigation of Warren Gage. And the, the recommendation that was made, th there was a, a small group within the, the, the larger board of Knox Seminary where there was initially a recommendation made to, to actually terminate Warren Gage uh, over his teaching. Um, which is what they should have done. Um, as, as it turned out, as I said, without diving into too many details here, uh, the board actually recommended that, that he be, the full board of Knox Seminary recommended that Warren Gage be suspended. And Warren Gage, good lawyer that he was, he knew how to fight. And anyway, he took this thing, took the recommendation for suspension to the, uh, the session of, of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. And there was a, a lot of testimony that, that went back and forth. And one of the things that Warren Gage and his supporters, um, they, they, they fought back against uh, Fowler White and some of Fowler White's supporters. Uh, and, and they said that, well, you know, that the, the Fowler White and in his group, that they were, were pushing Marsh's dictum. They were trying to, to impose Marsh's dictum on, on Warren Gage and, and that this was wrong. And it is the, the interesting thing. And so that was where I first really had heard about this. And it, it prompted me to kind of dig and find out, OK, well, what's this all about? Well, um, the, the thing is that, that uh, Fowler White and in his side. And, and by the way, R.C. Sproul was on was part of this this whole debate. Yeah, that R.C. Sproul, the very well-known R.C. Sproul, um, was was yeah. part of this, uh, all this testimony that was going on. And he was on the side of Fowler White and the board of Knox Seminary, you know, saying that Warren Gage should be suspended. Uh, and and the, uh, let's say the, the R. Fowler White, R.C. Sproul faction, they, they said, oh, no, 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 we're, we're, we're not saying, you know, we're, we're not supporting uh, Marsh's dictum. You know, they, they kind of ran away from Marsh's dictum, you know, like Superman would flee kryptonite. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, so, so, on, so on, on, on one hand, you know, you, you had, you had Warren Gage accusing, you know, Fowler White of trying to, to you know, hold him to Marsh's dictum. And you had the Fowler White and R.C. Sproul and that group saying, oh, no, 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 we're, 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 we're not, we're not, uh, we're not trying to advocate, Mar advocate for Marsh's dictum. Uh, and, and, and like I say, that's one of the things that kind of prompted me to study this and say, okay, so what exactly is Marsh's dictum? You know, what application does it have to, uh, to this controversy? And, and I thought it was very unfortunate that the, uh, that R. Fowler White, that, that his, I'm calling it R. Fowler White's faction. It was really the board of Knox Seminary, R. Fowler White, R.C. Sproul, and, and, and some other people that that were taking a stand against Warren Gage. Um, it was mm -hmm. very unfortunate that they ran away from Marsh's dictum because that was the one thing that they could have stood on that I think would have helped them in that fight. Um, as it turned out, right. just to kind of uh, fast forward ahead a little bit, um, the, the, uh, the session of Knox Seminary uh, ruled against the board of Knox Seminary. 
And they said, oh, well, there's there's no reason to to suspend uh, Warren Gage. They vacated his suspension. They restored him to his teaching duties. Um, and then when, when Warren Gage got back in and, and the faction that supported him, um, they actually terminated. They fired uh, our Fowler White. And they oh, wow. also, yeah, and they also terminated uh, Calvin Beisner. Uh, e. Calvin Beisner, that's a name that might be familiar to many listeners. Um, yeah, uh, he he was a he was a professor of of logic at uh, at Knox Seminary. He was fired, and then Robert Raymond, um, the Doctor Robert Raymond, you know the one that, that wrote the famous and justifiably famous, very well known, um, uh, hmm. systematic theology. He quit. Yeah, you know, he he resigned in, in in disgust at the whole thing. And so basically, what happened is that Warren Gage and his whole uh, imaginary. Uh, faction took over took over the school and you know sometimes I wonder you know if if the uh, if the, the the board of Knox Seminary and Fowler White and R.C. Sproul if they had taken a stand um, with uh, with Marsh's dictum you know I wonder if things maybe had gone differently for them but they ran away from it they they just they fled oh no 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 don't accuse us of, of having anything to do with Marsh's dictum uh, and, and that was very unfortunate yeah that's really interesting. I, I remember reading about that in the book that you kind of cover some of the background that uh, Beisner and Sproul getting involved. And it really struck me because, you know, they were saying, no, we're not, we're not that restrictive when it comes to typology. And I think they were trying to use the, the confession probably out of context when it talks about types and shadows. Mm -hmm. um, and, but I, you know, but they were using it in a hermeneutical sense. And so I guess they were they were going against the uh, the dictum itself, and it, that really was very interesting. And I think you you made a very good point in the book that um, the the wrong side, which was Gage, they were they were more consistent than the orthodox side that was trying to um, uh, uphold the truth. And so because the the wrong side was more consistent in their present in their view. Um, it, they really kind of won the day because the, because the the orthodox side sort of abandoned um, Marsh's dictum, which was their main one of their main lines of defense and holding a consistent reform hermeneutic. And so that was very revealing. I think that was a very revealing uh, point that you had brought out in the book. Carlos, that's a that's a great point. That's, that's, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up. That's that's very perceptive of you. That's another if you want to say maybe a third major lesson that we can take out of this. Um, in, in that that what you were just talking about that, that was actually um, I got that from a, a personal email um, while I was writing the book I was communicating with John Robbins and, and he sent me an email he talked about that he made the point that in any controversy he said the more consistent side tends to win and the less consistent Very side true. tends to lose and the and here's how that broke down. So you had on one hand, you had Warren Gage and his supporters. On the other hand, you had the Board of Knox Seminary, Fowler White, R.C. Sproul. Uh, and, and Warren Gage, I, I have to, I have to give, give him some grudging credit here. He was very bold in his heresy. Um, he, he was, he was, he was as, as, as bold as all is, as, as, as could be in, in promoting his heresy. This is one of the things that really struck me when I was a student down here, uh, down there at Knox is, I mean, he would go out and, and, and 
I mean, he would just talk the most ridiculous nonsense in class. Uh, he taught a very large Sunday school uh, over at, uh, at Coral Ridge, and he would talk nonsense over there. And, and he never made any apologies. He never varied from it. Uh, it. It was almost like he was going around with this great big neon sign saying, hey, everybody, I'm a false teacher. I double dog dare you to try to call me out on it. And nobody did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and it, it, wow. was, it was, yeah, it was amazing to watch this, but he was very consistent. And he was very bold in his assertion of his false teaching. On the other hand, you had the board, you had R.C. Sproul, you had, um, you had Fowler White, um, you know, and they would say, well, you know, um, okay, so, so maybe, you know, Warren Gage has just gone a little bit too far. You know, we're willing to accept maybe a certain amount, maybe of, of your rationalism, but we don't want to go all the way. And, 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 that that's what do they say that that's weak sauce right you know that that's that's the same yeah. yeah that's weak sauce you know just saying oh you know he just goes too far that's weak stuff you know i, I mean you know if you're going to accept your rationalism go all the way with it you know be warren gage um of course the or best go varsity. thing to do is, yeah yeah go varsity you know go big or go home all right um and, and warren gage he went big and and his opponents didn't go big you know warren gage went big with with a lie his opponents kind of said, yeah, yeah, but you know, uh, some of that you're just going too far. Well, no, that doesn't cut it. You know, if, if you're gonna, yeah. if you're gonna, if you're gonna go into a fight, you got to put on the full armor of God and you got to go at it. And unfortunately, the the opponents of Gage, they had some right ideas. They said some very good things. I'm not going to deny that they did some good things. I'm glad that they took a stand. They deserve credit for that, but they didn't go all the way. Um, they didn't, right. you know, they, they were not as bold in their defense of the truth as Warren Gage was bold in, in the defense of his, his false teaching. Yeah, That's that a big is, lesson. that is very sad. Yeah, yeah. But it is an important lesson for, for us to learn in our time. Yeah. Uh, Cause it still happens. I mean, it's still a very prevalent uh, problem. And yeah. I wanted to read another quote from, from your book on page 63. Uh, you actually quote Herbert Marsh and he defines what a type is uh, in this way, he says, whatever persons or things therefore recorded in the Old Testament were expressly declared by Christ or by his apostles to have been designed as prefigurations of persons or things relating to the New Testament, such as persons or things so recorded in the former are types of the persons or things which with which they are compared in the latter. So um, th this, is, this is really good stuff. It was very insightful because Basically, as you kind of explained already, um, Marsh's dictum would only affirm uh, the only way that you can affirm a biblical type is that if it is expressly laid out in in scripture mm -hmm. in, in the New Testament. Right. So yeah. how did you how did you when you learned that what 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 kind of what changed in your thinking or what how did that color your perspective on? You know the ref the reform faith that the your experience at Knox and you know what how did that influence you? Sure. Well, I, I think really the the big thing was and, and one of the reasons that I featured Marsh's dictum in that that book so prominently was just because it, it was the only thing that I found from a uh, or one of the few things I should say and certainly probably the clearest uh, statement that I found of you know logically sound typology. Um, there, as I said, you, you can pour through uh, the writings of even reformed writers, and I'm talking about writers even maybe that, that were quite good on many things. 
Um, right. But when it comes to typology, it's like they just abandon their their um, <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, they, they they just forget that that uh, you know that uh, Westminster Confession uh, chapter one section six even exists, and and they start mm. speculating. And it's yeah. like no, you know, come back to it. You know, you know, you know, get back on the straight and narrow here. Now, now, one thing I wanted to mention about Marsh's dictum, and and I know R.C. Sproul had mentioned this during the um, during the the controversy. You know, he said that you know, he he intimated that he disagreed with Marsh's dictum because he says, well, it doesn't allow for uh, determining types by good and necessary inference. He'd say, you know, you know Marsh says it has to be expressly set forth. You know, he's saying, well, well, it could also include necessary inference. And to which I say, you know, okay, you, you can make that argument. The one thing, though, that I never heard from the people, and I mentioned this in the book, that I never heard from, from you know, the R.C. Sproul, Knox Seminary Board, or Fowler-Whiteside, I never heard them make, give any examples of a type determined by good and necessary inference. Now, I mean, if someone could show that, I mean, if someone can demonstrate that, that's one thing. You know, so you might say, okay, is it possible that that Marsh's dictum could be improved a little bit to include not just express thing, express statements, but good and necessary right. inferences? It's possible. If someone would just need to demonstrate that. But but all they would do yeah. is they would just be using still biblically sound, logically sound principles. You know, that that's you know that that's far from the kind of imaginary typology. That, that you get in Warren Gage, and not just Warren Gage, but in many other people who claim to be reformed. Yeah, that's those are some really great points. And I wanted to kind of dig deeper into that a little bit, uh, because when when I read your book, I mean, it just it was so stimulating that it got me thinking about a whole bunch of other things that I that I was uh, picking up in other areas. And so um, one of those things was it got me thinking about a lot of the discussions or I guess uh, debates regarding certain passages like uh, a, a very prominent one is Abraham's son, right? The, the issue of Abraham's son, whether you can say legitimately that Abraham's son was a type of Christ, even though uh, the New Testament doesn't necessarily explicitly uh, make that connection. And so I remember hearing one time uh, a message by Paul Washer where he he basically, and he he says that um, when 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 God um, tested Abraham, that was not the end of the story. So, in the sermon, uh, Paul Washer uh, is telling the story of Abraham's son, and he's saying that that was a great test of Abraham's faith, and um, he passed the test, and and so on and so forth. But then he kind of keeps going, and he says that that was not the end of the story. That was just the interlude. And what happened was that God took that that knife and he slaughtered his only son with it. And so I thought that was a pretty compelling point that he was making that, you know, that connection. He, now, he didn't explicitly say that uh, Christ was a type of 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 Abraham's son. But, you know, that he was it, it was a very obviously an explicit connection that he was making. And so I, I found that somewhat compelling. I was kind of uh, wondering, like, OK, well, what about that? You know, I don't know. If, and I don't. I suspect that they may they may not have mentioned that example in the in in you know sprawl and those guys that were defending trying to defend the right view. Um, but what do you make of that? You know, because and Paul Washer he's not one of those guys to go off into some wild imaginative heresy mm -hmm. like uh, you know Gage and maybe Fowler White do. But um, what what would you make of that? Yeah, well, I mean, again, I, I think I would be very 
Yeah, I, I would not, certainly would not say. I, I think you're talking about was the idea of, it sounded like maybe Washer was intimating, or maybe I maybe misheard you, maybe you can, can clarify it for me if I'm stating this incorrectly. Perhaps was, was Washer saying that he thought that what, Abraham or Isaac was, was a type of Christ? Is that the idea? Yeah, essentially because Abraham was going to slaughter his his son, his his the son of promise, mm -hmm. and um, you know he ended up and ended up sort of being a, a foreshadowing of Christ uh, being slaughtered on the cross uh, by the Father pouring out his wrath on him, and so um, he, that he's and he wasn't again I, he didn't make the exp the connection explicit, but yeah. it kind of made me wonder like okay well what could you make the case that um, Abraham's son was a type of, of Christ. Um, I wouldn't wouldn't say that. No, I mean again because I just I don't think you can draw that that idea uh, from Scripture. I mean you can. Here's one of the the, the things that where I, I think you get get to be a gets to be a real challenge is that you can find similarities between um, all sorts of things in the Scriptures, uh, but simply because something is similar. You know, the, you know the, the scriptures don't necessarily identify those things as types. There's actually relatively few things that the scripture actually points out as types. You know, we, we talk about, you know, very clearly there's, you know, Adam was a type of Christ. Well, how do we know that? Because Paul tells us explicitly that he was a type of Christ. You know, right. we don't have to guess or to speculate at that. And, and, you know, can you find some similarities? Can you find some parallels between um, the situation there with Abraham and, and Isaac and, and uh, God the Father and, and Jesus Christ, or you can find some parallels there. You can draw some parallels, uh, some useful parallels. But I mean, I, I don't know that, as, as again, I, the scriptures don't call it a type. Uh, they don't necessarily imply that it's a type. And, and as I said, even with when it comes to necessary inference, I mean, if, you know, you, you can find similar things, you can find similarities between all kinds of things in scripture. Uh, and and just because things are similar doesn't necessarily mean that that those things are types, uh, one of the mm -hmm. other. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, and we, I guess when you think about it, it, all the analogies tend to break down at some point because obviously Christ went willingly to his death, mm -hmm. whereas Abraham's son, I'm sure, I'm sure Abraham's son had some reservation about uh, being slaughtered as a sacrifice and. Um, the other point, obviously, being that he was he was not in fact slaughtered, whereas Christ was, and so correct. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so, so I mean, exactly. You, you can all you can you can find parallels, but then you get all these problems too. You know, yeah. as you mentioned, these analogies break down at some point, and so the, then you're you're if you want to use this idea that we're going to say, well, one thing is similar to another, um, you know, and use that as the basis for types. I mean, you could technically turn just about anything in the Old Testament into a type of something in the New Testament. I mean, you could just let your imagination run wild and then you end up, you're right back to Warren Gage. Yeah, and that's a perfect segue into the next topic here. So speaking of, of Gage and, and typology now, um, what is this, uh, this, this was, this is now we're getting into the bizarre um, because apparently Gage makes the claim that Rahab is a type of the church. Yes. And so, um, that was some of the most bizarre stuff that I've that I've ever read. So, could you uh, would you would you care to explain a little bit what he meant by that? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
you know, just to kind of kind of preface my remarks a little bit, Carlos, it, it's kind of funny that you would would use that term because you know talk about bizarre stuff. Because when I uh, sat and I, I talked with John Robbins, uh, and this what I, I met John, we uh, as I said when I drove back from Fort Lauderdale to Cincinnati, and so this was uh, actually January two thousand seven, uh, and we were sitting there talking, and he said he told me he said Steve, you know, I I've, I've thought about writing something on Warren Gage, he says, because, you know, when I read, read his, his stuff, his John Revelation project, he said, that's some of the most bizarre stuff I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) That's what he called. He says some of the most bizarre stuff I've ever seen. So it's kind of interesting that you use that same term and it's really Mm -hmm. true. I mean, this stuff is just flat out bizarre and no, I I don't believe that rehab is a type of the church. Um, And, and I don't have um, some of his, uh, arguments here in front of me, so I'm, I'm a little bit of a disadvantage here. Um, but no, uh, you know, re- rehab is not a type of the church. I mean, it's not something that's ever explicitly stated. It's not something that's uh, uh, from a logical inference standpoint that you can establish. And and some of the reasons that he, he actually gives um, for rehab being a type of the church, frankly, are pretty strange. You know, as you said, they're just bizarre. Yeah, well, and I have a. I'm I'm looking at your book here on page 94. You have a whole chapter on this. Uh, is Rahab a type of the church? And um, here, the authors, you, you you say the authors clearly state that the whore of Babylon will become the bride of Christ. Uh, that that was really kind of. I, I was kind of awestruck by that. It's like, wh- what in the world are they? Si- I mean, that's. That's almost that almost sounds blasphemous. Yeah, it it, uh, it really is. And in what he tried to do, and, and thanks for for bringing that that up. You know, he he tries to argue that you know that Rahab was a harlot, you know, who was saved, um, and then he tries to to apply this to uh, the Book of Revelation. Of course, you know, we have Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, right? And he identifies, you know, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots, you know, the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. Uh, and he tries to say that that's the church, you know, that's, wow. that, that's transformed into the bride of Christ. Well, if you read, all you have to do is read, read the, the book of Revelation. Well, what happens to the woman who rides the beach? Now, she's destroyed. Doesn't become the bride of Christ. Yeah, you know, I, I mean that's you know I mean it it talks about you know she's she's burned with I I, I don't have the exact quote in there but she's destroyed. Yeah, so I mean this this idea that somehow that that Rahab as a type of the the Babylonian harlot that that's that's saved is is just rubbish. It doesn't hold up if you actually read read the Book of Revelation. You know right. instead of, instead of coming up with all these wild speculations. So. You know that it, this just this just occurred to me. This actually just struck me. Um, given that this is such a medieval way, a Roman Catholic way of interpreting scripture, um, it, it, saying that the whore of Babylon is a type of the church. That's almost like saying that the Roman Catholic Church is a true church, because um, as you know, the Protestants historically have said that the whore of Babylon is the Catholic Church. That yes. you know, then so that's that's pretty. That's that's kind of disturbing in a sort of ironic way that having it well and it shouldn't be a surprise to us that having a med if you use a medieval Roman Catholic hermeneutic that that it could lead you to make 
the same very same deductions and conclusions that they make right. that the Roman Catholic Church makes, and so that's that's pretty that's profoundly disturbing. Yeah, yeah, and, well, um, yeah, yeah. You're you're right. Very that's that's an excellent point, Carlos. And, and of course, you know, Roman Gage, you know, or Warren Gage, he he was educated at a Roman Catholic school. You know, he got his doctorate, his right. theological doctorate. He got at a Roman Catholic school. Um, he was very heavily pushed Roman Catholicism. I mentioned this in the book. You know, he criticizes the Puritans. You know, he didn't like the Puritans, but but he you know he loved the medieval Roman Catholics. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> and right. yeah yeah and, and and yet he's teaching at a putatively, you know, conservative Protestant Reformed seminary. You know, and it's uh, yeah I know he 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 very often defended Rome. Very often, Fender. I remember on his office door, he had a picture. It was like a medieval picture painting of the Pope, but he had his, he, in, in place of the Pope's head, he had his own face. So I guess, I don't know, wow. maybe he had this fantasy about being Pope or something. I, I, I don't <laughs> know. Um, but yeah, he was, was very pro Roman Catholic, you know, and, and you're absolutely right. You know, of course, what did the Puritans think the Babylonian harlot was? Well, it was a Roman Catholic church, and the Puritans right. were right. They were right about that. Right. You know, that that is the historic, that is the correct um, identification of the Babylonian harlot. But, you know, Warren Gage tries to shift the attention from that. And, and he actually became very emotional in class one time when he was talking about that. I thought he was going to cry when he was talking about how Protestants had had uh, had uh, identified, you know, the Babylonian harlot as Roman. In fact, in the John Revelation Project, and I think I quoted it in the book, he talked about um, the Protestant identification of of Rome as the Babylonian harlot. He called it, um, I think, what five hundred full years of slander or something like that. Wow. Uh, that, yeah, and uh, yeah, he was very upset um, at this this whole idea of uh, of Rome being identified as as the Babylonian harlot, which is what it is. It's a false church. You know, you, wow. you you know in in the book of Revelation you see two women, right? You've got you've got the uh, the Babylonian harlot and you have the bride of Christ. They're not the same individuals. You know, they're not the same people. Yeah, I think you made a good point about Gage that he really was sort of a Roman Catholic dressed up in Presbyterian garbs because yeah. I mean that's for you to say those things and believe those things that you're not you're not even close to being a Protestant at that no. point. Um, and so. I like what you said on page 95. You do a, uh, you, you kind of sum up the issue here very nicely. Um, and it really exposes just how bad this, this theology is. So you say, there is no happily ever after for, the Babylon, for Babylon the harlot. Far from becoming, quote, Lady Babylon, as the confused commentators grotesquely call her, she lives and dies as a harlot, although a remnant is called out of the harlot city and saved, Revelation 18.4. But as the Bible makes clear, even after this remnant leaves, there is still there still remains a harlot city that is finally destroyed by the wrath of God. The quote lady, it turns out, is a tramp, not the bride of Christ. <laughs> so that was a that was a very clever way of refuting the nonsense that they were espousing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh... <laughs> yeah. Thanks for reading that. Um, yeah, you know, it's 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 truly amazing. That that someone in a a uh, as I said a, a putatively Protestant uh, seminary you know a, a seminary that that really did have many good things going for it. There were some you know there were some 
what, even in the short time I was down here, I had the privilege of, of sitting under Dr. Raymond as a teacher. Uh, I had uh, Cal Beisner's logic class, which was an excellent class. Uh, I had an opportunity to meet you know, a lot of wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ at Knox Seminary. Um, but the stuff that, that Warren Gage was pushing um, was, you know, he was, as you said, he was really a Romanist in Presbyterian clothing. And, you know, and, and he, he was so driven. He, he was driven by his imagination. He was his, he was driven by literary analysis to the point where he would ignore the plain statements of scripture. Yes, there was a Babylonian harlot, and that Babylonian harlot is destroyed. Right now, you know, there's that one I, I in, in Revelation it talks about. You know, come out from among her, and you know, be not partakers of her plagues. Well, you know, many people have come out of Rome. Uh, people are constantly, you know, being saved and leaving the Roman Catholic Church. You know, right. and I would say to anyone who's a Roman Catholic listener, get out of there. You know, don't be a partaker of the plagues of the of the Babylonian harlot, because Christ will judge. He is judging, and he will finally judge that church. Uh, Amen. False yeah. Doctrine. Yeah, and as you may know, Tim and I were former Roman Catholics, and so I'm living testimony to the to the grace of God and. And I'm very glad that God gave me, revealed the, the truth to me through his word and enabled me to see that the Roman Catholic Church uh, is not is not a true church, that it is definitely a false, uh, false religion. And so, um, yeah, that's really it's it's it was it's profoundly disturbing stuff. And you spoke about um, you mentioned literary analysis that Gage liked to use a lot of literary analysis. And I wanted to ask you about some of the stuff you talk in the book about the parallels. One of the main points of the John Revelation project, I guess, is he, he uh, Gage attempts to draw a parallel between the book of Revelation and the book of John. And it was very bizarre stuff. Like they, he tries to say that they happen uh, at the same time or yes. some weird thing. And, you know, could you, could you get into that? Yeah. It, it's kind of hard to, to, to even to, to convey this. Um, <laughs> The, the stuff is, is, is so strange, it's almost a little hard to talk about it. And when I talk about it, I probably sound like some lunatic, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, what 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 he argued, and he argued that that the book of John on the one hand and the book of Revelation on the other hand were describing the same events. One from an earthly perspective, John, and one from a heavenly perspective, Revelation. And and it, it was wow. almost, you know, it, it was like like parallel, I, uh, it, it, it was, I, I don't know, it was, it was like like parallel movies, you know, that were, you know, maybe uh, one movie was was shot from one one perspective and then another movie was shot right. from, from another character's perspective, but it was the same basic story. And and so what, what he says is that these things, you know, all the events that happened in John uh, happened at the same time as all the events in the book of Revelation. Well, I mean, stop and think about that for a moment. What, the, what does that imply? You know, I mean, either that implies that, you know, that all of the events in the book of Revelation have already taken place, including the second coming. Um, or I don't know, maybe, maybe Christ is still walking on earth and hasn't been crucified or ascended yet. I mean, I, wow. it, it's, it's just, it's absolutely bizarre. And, and it was interesting, too, when, you know, I mentioned that, that Warren Gage presented the John Revelation Project at a couple of seminars. Um, and this was before I ever went down to Knox, but I got this, I got the seminar recordings. And it was very interesting because they had a, a, a question and answer session after one of these presentations. 
And someone from the audience picked up on this. And they and I don't remember the exact wording of the question, but they said, well, doesn't it seem a bit odd? Or are, are you saying that the events in John all happened at the same time as the events in Revelation? And how do you reconcile this? And, and I remember uh, R. Fowler White, who was assisting with the, the presentation of the John Revelation project. And he gave a, a somewhat long-winded answer. And he said, well, yeah, but we believe that, that those things that refer, uh, I, I don't remember exactly how he phrased it, but he said you know, something to the effect of, you know, we believe that, that the, the things in Revelation refer to the future really do refer to the future and are not, you know, part of the past. Well, you know, here, here's the problem. If you're going to be consistent, if you're going to say that Revelation and, and the book of John are telling the same story, you know, you can't pick and choose which parts <laughs> uh, occurred at the same time and which parts occur in the future. I mean, if you do that, then your whole, then your whole analysis breaks down. So I mean, yeah, that, e e either you have to either you have to to try to say that that all of the stuff in John happened at all at the same time as all the stuff in Revelation, or they didn't. And if if they did, you if they did all happen at the same time, you have a very strange that implies all kinds of weird things. And if you say, well, okay, well, some things didn't happen at the same time, then your analysis breaks down. Yeah, it, it's wow, it's it's pretty ridiculous. I mean, it's almost. I guess it leads the two extremes. It could lead to either full preterism or um, like, I guess the, the belief that the gospel of John is still, we're still living in the same situation in times with the gospel of John and Jesus must still be alive. Like, it, it's just a very, right. very bizarre. And, and, and as I preface my remarks, I said, you know, when I talk about this, people are going to think I'm probably some lunatic. Like I'm <laughs> saying, this is really what they taught. Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe this stuff. I'm just trying to say this is what was being taught. And this was what being, was, was being taught very publicly in, in a, a pretty important place. I mean, Knox, as I said, Knox Seminary was associated with Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. You know, there right. was, you know, there was no more, there was no better known Presbyterian church. There was no better known Presbyterian teacher um, for many decades than D. James Kennedy and Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. And this stuff was being right. put out right at the, the at the very heart of you know, conservative Presbyterianism. And this is actually really what was being taught. And, and as I said before, it's almost like Warren Gage was going around with this great big neon sign saying, hey, everybody, I'm a heretic. And I double dog dare you to call me out. You know, and, and he was actually teaching this stuff in public. And it's just it's sitting here and talking with you about this, Carlos. I still can't believe it. You know, and I actually witnessed some of this stuff myself. Wow. I mean, it, yeah, it sounds like a massive pile of, of heretical nonsense. It, it's just so yeah. ridiculous. And you know, um, you since you since you touched on D. James Kennedy, do you know if he had did he have anything to say about it? I know he was close to his, I guess, to his death at that point. But did did he? Um, I suspect he probably would have disagreed. But you know, I don't know. Do you know what happened? Yeah, that, 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 that's an excellent question. And I, I deal with this a little bit in the, the preface to the book. I, in the preface to my book, I kind of give a little bit of the history of, of some of the upheaval at Knox and, uh, and the controversy that occurred in 2007 and, and how Warren Gage took over. One of the things that I, I didn't know when I was a student, and I, I learned this after I had gotten out of school and I was doing some research for the book, is that uh, Kennedy actually did not want to hire Warren Gage, and and he was he was prevailed upon um, to to bring him on board. You know, he listened to some 
in the end, ultimately bad advice uh, and, and hired him. And what I also found out too, is that there had been, uh, Warren Gage came to Knox and I hope my memory is serving me correctly here. I believe he started a teaching there in 2002. So he had been there about four years before I got there. And there had been some, uh, some, some issues with his teaching that had been raised some concerns have been raised. And, and I, I guess, you know, he was um, called into the principal's office, so to speak, uh, on, on a few occasions, you know, and, and, but nothing really came of it. I mean, there's never any real disciplinary action. I guess maybe he said, oh, okay, you know, uh, maybe I'll de-emphasize this doctrine or something, but, but there, there was never anything that really came about. There was never any, any discipline that was enforced upon him. And so he just kept on doing the same stuff that he, he, uh, uh, that he always did. And in fact, he just became more and more bold the longer he was there. Wow. That, yeah, uh, that is unfortunate. You know, it, this, this rings such a similar bell. This sounds so familiar to other um, unfortunate cases in, in the history of the church where, you know, it's almost like one, one really big bad apple can, can spoil the entire seminary it can, it can spoil the entire denomination even i mean it's just um the way this stuff goes unchecked and it and it doesn't get properly addressed and um that was one of the the most striking things to me is that just how much damage one one uh bold and consistent heretic can really do and um yeah yeah did you want to no i was just, just gonna say well what's what's the biblical saying there a little leaven leavens the whole lump right right amen yeah uh, that's yeah that's definitely a uh, a, a very vivid um example of 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 that of that illustration and so um you know this this kind of th there's this this really was so interesting to 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 learn about all this stuff and um i wanted to uh, kind of touch on a few points here with respect to um oh it, well and i was going to say that you know like the, the current justification controversy what happened with uh, o palmer robertson and norman shepherd all of these cases where there was no proper church discipline administered to these false teachers and the the the, the, denomi the denomination really kind of just loses its way it's very sad to see that and how um just how unfortunate it keeps it, it continues to happen and so a lot of these issues are still very relevant in our even today and so um i kind of wanted to touch on some of those issues um, so I learned a lot of important lessons in your book. I, I was really one of it's a, it was an excellent book. And so one of the things that, um, I wanted to go back a little bit, uh, to talk about hermeneutics because there's, um, and to show you how, to show our listeners how relevant this is, is, um, one of the most popular methods of interpreting the Bible. And it is by far one of the most popular, if not the most popular, uh, method of interpreting the Bible in evangelicalism is sort of what um, Chris Rosebro comically calls narcissus. Narcissus, <laughs> and so yeah, it's a very it's a very clever term. And I have a Chris Rosebro. He's from Pyre Christian Radio. He's a Lutheran who has some really good. Uh, he has a discernment podcast and ministry. He has a lot of really good stuff. And um, so he he defines narcissus as this. This term combines the word narcissist with the word eisegesis to form this me-centered way to interpret scripture. A narcissist is someone who is in love with and consumed by themselves, and eisegesis puts a person's own interpretation into the biblical text 
while completely ignoring the objective meaning within the context of the surrounding verses. So narcissism is the process of reading yourself into the text and turning every verse, every Bible verse into a story about me. And so this really struck me because one of the, this is how so many popular Bible teachers teach the Bible. They say, oh, the, the story of David and Goliath is not about, it's really about you. You are David and Goliath are your problems in this life. And, and just all the nonsense that, that gets touted as Christian uh, teaching as Bible teaching is really just bad typology. I mean, it, it's yeah. it's just sort of uh, that's just the simplest way to put it. And so, if we properly understood uh, biblical typology, the way the Westminster Confession defines it, and the way Marsh's dictum um, defined it as well, I think it would really save the church from a lot of disastrous uh, consequences that are sadly so common and pro and prevalent in our day. Oh, I, I agree with you, you know, and, and of course, you know, we live in, in a time that is is very much anti anti logic. You know, I love your term, uh, the term that you use there, narcissist. I wish I'd had that. If I if I had known about that when I when I wrote the book, I probably would have used it. Um, but but you know, we, we this is one of the things, you know, if if you've read much, and I know you have, but maybe for uh, listeners who who maybe aren't familiar with uh, the work of John Robbins or the work of Gordon Clark. Um, you know, one of the things that, that they both talked about at great length was how the modern church has really rejected uh, logic. And, and we, we you right. know, sort of embrace this kind of fuzzy, you know, uh, you know, what's that saying in the 60s? You know, if it feels good, do it. You know, it's all about it's all about feelings. You know, uh, yeah. Warren Gage was all about feelings. You know, he was all about intuition and, and imagination and uh, and, and feelings. And, and of course, you know, I say he's not the only one. I mean, this is very, very common. Um, and, you know, if I feel that a certain passage says something, well, then that's what it means, you know, and uh, yeah. and, 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 and you're right. I mean, if, when we, we go down that path of thinking, I mean, there's no limit to the amount of error that we can find ourselves in. Yeah, it, it is. Um, it just made me, it really made me appreciate so much more the the reform hermeneutic, um, the grammatical historical hermeneutic, and what, as Westminster ex describes, the, the scripture, interpreting scripture with scripture, um, using uh, the the literal sense of the of the of the passages, and not trying to impose yourself on the text the way so many prominent Bible teaching does today. And um, another interesting case in point, this really like there's just so much application to these to these foundational uh principles that that you cover in your book and they it really kind of helped me to resolve a lot of um uh, sort of internal in, in un, i was unsure about c certain things like for example you know one time my my church had a bible study um they they did a they showed a video i think by michael reeves about the 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 song of solomon the song of solomon and um a lot of a lot of people, not just reformed folks, but will will say that the Christ is that, that the Song of Solomon is really talking about uh, Christ and his and and the church. And so I kind of thought about that when when I had already read your book at that point, and I kind of thought about it, and I was like, well, wait a minute, but where does it say in the New Testament that um, that is, that that Christ is um, that is specifically talking about Christ in the Song of Solomon? And so. I thought about it a little bit and I was like, wait, okay, so there, there's there's two different things at play here because you have to be really careful. And um, it kind of made me realize 
no, the, the reason it points to Christ is because marriage in general is um, is a picture of Christ and his bride. It's by the virtue of the fact that it's a marriage, not mm -hmm. because not because it just it's in the Bible and, and it's talking about a marriage in the Old Testament. And so that really kind of gives you some really good um, hermeneutical sort of fences to, to yeah. really help you understand and just what the limitations are of what the Bible is actually saying. And so that, I thought that was profoundly helpful. I mean, it, it really does help you in so many of these areas that become speculative. And there's a lot of discussion and back and forth about what exactly the passages mean. And I think those those um, these these principles that you're teaching that you explain in your book, I thought were extremely illuminating in 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 situations like those. I think that's uh, Carlos. You said that very well. Uh, I, I I can't really add to that. I think you really stated that very clearly. Yeah, no, and I do really appreciate um, learning that. And, and this this one one other hugely prominent example, especially in Presbyterianism and even in the evangelical evangelicalism as a, as a, as a larger whole, um, is, you know, we talk about how wild and nutty, um, the John revelation project was, but this stuff is still alive and well, and th even thriving today. Um, namely in, um, a very prominent, uh, Presbyterian called Tim Keller. And so this really struck me because we had, um, engaged in a pretty, a pretty extended controversy about Tim Keller back in my old church. And uh, we ended up leaving in large part because of this issue with Tim Keller. And I don't know if you've ever read his book, the prodigal God. Um, but he, he Keller in the same, almost in the same way that um, our uh, Warren Gage uses typology to justify his, his false teaching Keller almost in the exact same way uses parables biblical parables mm -hmm. to illustrate uh his to, to eisegete his false teaching into the into the bible mm. and so it really struck me because the parallels were were just they were just they became immediate immediately apparent when i when i saw that because he has a, also a very similar way of interpreting the bible in in a sort of census plenier you know this fuller sense right. uh, where he starts talking about the parables and he starts adding all of this ridiculous stuff and just erecting a massive theological tower of babel and in, in, in similar to how the Church of Rome does when they talk about Mary being full of grace. And, and from that, they, they, they get these, all of these false teachings about how she's a mediatrix of grace and all of these things when that's nowhere near what the Bible intended to say. And likewise, Keller, in using the parables, because they're ambiguous by their very nature and in disregarding the literal sense or meaning that the Bible gives, he uses that as an as an occasion as false teachers before him have before to impose his 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 um false teaching into the text and so that really struck me i, I was like this is this is still happening by even by one of the most popular bible teachers of our time sure sure yeah and and yeah you know it's it's interesting how when you as soon as you abandon you know the idea that you know, that we know about God through the express statements or the necessary inferences of scripture. As soon as you, in the least little bit, say, okay, well, that stuff's good, but but we can add this other little thing to it. Um, you've opened the door to every manner of heresy. Uh, and yeah. I mean, you, you, you've opened the door to just letting your imagination run wild. And and yeah. and there are there are a lot of people out there. You know, you mentioned Tim Keller. I'm not as familiar with Tim Keller. 
Um, I've, I've read some about him. Uh, I haven't really read a lot of his stuff, but you know, anyone you know who who sets aside sound logical principles of reading the scripture uh, just opens himself up for every sort of bizarre thing. You know, and and really the the uh, the extent uh, the degree of someone's error is limited only by his imagination. <laughs> yeah, right. And I remember we talked about this before in our in our previous interview. Where um, I think for people to say, because I know some people might struggle with Marsha's dictum and say, well, like, well, you know, I don't know if it's really a legitimate biblical uh, principle. But but just like so we, we've been just talking about para, uh, parables and in, in uh, when Christ is explaining the parables, he says, you can't know the meaning of the parable unless I explicitly give it to you. Mm -hmm. And so otherwise you're not going to know what it means. How else? And he talks about that in Mark chapter four, I think, how else will you know the meaning of any parable if you don't have the literal interpretation of the parable itself, because they're by, by nature ambiguous and they were designed not to illustrate, but to confute and to confuse and obscure. And so um, given that that remarkable parallel there with with uh, parallels, you have a very strong case. I th I think a very strong case for for supporting just how important and really how biblical Marsh's dictum is, and and the reformed, uh, the consistent reformed hermeneutic of interpreting scripture with scripture and express statements of of the, of the scriptures. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point you brought up there about the parables. You know, and so many people um, don't understand as you do that you know when christ gave those parables he gave those to confuse people right uh and then he explained them in literal language what they meant and that's the only reason we really understand what those things mean is because christ explained them. right yeah that's that so this is just i'm, I'm trying to give people i'm trying to salt their oats a little bit to 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 really get i got so much out of this is really one of the most this is one of the most influential books i've read um, that that has helped me to grow in my understanding of the Christian faith. I really appreciated your, your book um, for this, and I hardly and I was very I'm very grateful that you sent Tim and I uh, copies to read it and take a look at it so that we could interview. You. And I'm going to turn back to it uh, time and time again to to cover uh, to to help shed some light on a lot of these issues that continue to come up and and are so prevalent today. And so I guess I wanted to see if we could close with with this. And you've already touched on it a little bit, but as regarding the the aftermath of of Knox Seminary, you know what what really happened after this this debacle? You know, you kind of touched on the the some of the sound professors. They ended up getting fired or leaving, uh, resigning, and it sounded like Warren Gage uh, stayed. Yeah, yeah, he did. It's 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 kind of uh, it, it's it's actually pretty amazing what happened down there. As I mentioned, you know, Warren Gage was a lawyer. And the guy knew how to fight. Um, I, I will not, I, I won't deny that. I mean, I don't agree with his theology at all, but he knew how to fight. He knew how to work a system. And mm. and he he defeated the, uh, he and his faction defeated the Board of Knox Seminary. They defeated Fowler White. They defeated R.C. Sproul. Um, he was reinstated uh, to his teaching position. And all the people that opposed Gage actually got the boot. <laughs> so, so yeah. it went from 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 Gage being being uh, sent packing. That was the original uh, 
set up. You know, they were going to they, they they originally recommended that they were going to fire him, but then they backed off and they said, OK, we're just going to suspend you. They recommended the suspension. Well, Gage's suspension was vacated by oh, yeah. uh, by the board of Knox Seminary or by the uh, by the session of Knox Seminary. He was reinstated to his teaching position. And uh, within a few months, um, Fowler White was was dismissed. And um, uh, uh, E. Calvin Beisner, Dr. Beisner was dismissed, and then uh, Robert Raymond quit. So, you know, it, uh, it was a, a thoroughgoing victory um, for Warren Gage. You know, the bad guys won that fight. And in terms of, you know, what effect did that have on, uh, on Knox Seminary? Well, I, I wrote a, a blog piece um, a few years ago, it was, it was interesting. When, when I went to Knox Seminary, as I mentioned, one of the things that really attracted me to it was the strong emphasis they had on logic. You had to take a course, in, you had to take courses in logic and in apologetics. And and they said this is not something that's very that's typical anymore of, of most seminaries, but it was at Knox at that time. Now, if you, I, I went on to the Knox website, and they have a very nice website, and they have their their uh, like their student handbook is is all in uh, in a, an electronic form, and you can go on there and you can search terms. So it was kind of funny. I went on there and I searched the student handbook. I searched the term logic, okay, just to see what if they had anything about that. Well, it came uh -oh. back and said, "Sorry, no results found." Oh man, <laughs> left the building. Yeah, yeah, logic. Yeah, Elvis left the building. So. Uh, so I actually wrote this blog piece. And I, I, it, it was it was the title. I think I titled it Knox Seminary. Uh, you know, uh, no logic found. <laughs> oh yeah, I think I think, and I saw those posts and on uh, Thorncrown Network. You, I think you called it Logic No Results Found. Yeah, yeah, Logic No Results Found. Thank you. And uh, <laughs> and, wow. and so that, that that's one of the ways in which in which Knox changed. So. So when when Warren Gage and his faction took over, I mean they, you know, you as I mentioned, uh, Dr. Beisner was let go, um, and apparently, as far as I'm aware, as far as I'm aware, that he you know, he was never replaced. His his whole program teaching logic and apologetics was never replaced. And if you look at at you know, I, I still have a copy of a paper copy of my uh, my you know, the, the student guide for, for 2006, and it talks in there quite a bit about logic. But now that term's completely absent from Knox Seminary, sadly. Yeah, that, that is, that almost sounds like logic's kind of left with the Clarkians that yeah. that, that were there. And, yeah. um, you, you know, you mentioned that he stayed until 2014? That's correct. Mm -hmm. That's a long time after the, the... And did he leave in good standing? He just retired calmly? There was... Uh, what, yeah, what, what, you know what? It, yeah, that that that's an in, that's a very interesting question that you put up there. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll answer it this way: the his his official officially he left in good standing without any controversy. That's that's the official wow. line. Now, the, here, here's why I put it that way. Um, for some reason or another. Um, I was still, you know, even though this was eight years after I had left, I was still on the, the Knox uh, email list of some sort. And so I get this email one day uh, in the spring of 2014. It talks about, uh, you know, Warren Gates leaving. And you, you kind of read through it. It's a fairly short email, but at one point it makes a pretty striking statement. And it says, you know, please be sure to squelch any rumors, you know, circulating about, 
you know, Warren Gage's departure. Oh. <laughs> and so that immediately says to me, you know, okay, so what was it? <laughs> you know, what are these rumors that they're trying to squelch? I, I don't know to this day. Yeah, I don't know wow. whether they're true. I don't know whether they're false. I don't know. And I don't claim to know. Um, but like I say, the official line is, yes, that he left in good standing. But yeah, that, yeah. that, that line really kind of makes me wonder. Yeah, and that is that is sad. That I mean, it it, it is. You mentioned part of the reason you went is because there was what three like three Clarkian professor. It sounded like the seminary had a lot of promising things going for it. It did, and yeah, and it just the way it all turned out. It all the damage that was done by this false teaching is just basically a heap of ashes now. I mean, the, there's not there's nothing really decent there. Uh, it seems from the seminary. I mean. And I have seen, I don't know if you if you knew or if you, you met uh, John, Jonathan Linbaugh. Um, he seems to be saying some good things about justification. And I, I don't know if he's still a professor there. I think he was a he's a professor at uh, Knox. But um, other than that, I mean, it just seems like it, it's sort of just, it, it's, a, it's no good now. I mean, it, it's just another sad uh, story of how when false teaching doesn't get properly checked, um, it really wreaks havoc. Yeah, and and you know, Carlos, I think that maybe is is yeah that that's that's one of the big lessons that I think you can take out of that book. You know, if you don't address false teaching boldly, consistently, uh, right. and 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 fairly early on, um, you know, you really put your seminary, you put your church, uh, whatever organization you're, you know you're talking about at risk. Yeah, very true. Because, you know, false teaching spreads like, you know, it's like kudzu. It's like weed. You know, I mean, it's, it, it, it can just take off. Uh, you know, again, going back to that biblical principle, you know, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know, you've got to deal with that stuff early right. and, and boldly. And unfortunately, Knox did not do that. And uh, they paid the price for it. Sadly, yeah. And one of the things, though, that I am grateful for is that your book really illustrates how God uses, sovereignly uses controversies like these to to clarify and more solidly define the truth and what it means to what, what it is that the bible teaches and i think mm -hmm. one of those really important things was marsh's dictum and just how valuable and important of a of a biblical principle it is to to having a solid biblical hermeneutic i really um i really do appreciate that that i got from uh, getting that from the book and um i really highly encourage people to check out um your 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 book it's at the trinity foundation i think it's uh i'm not i haven't checked if it's on sale but it's at a it's a very affordable price yeah and uh highly recommend our listeners to check out this book it will it's one of the most influential books i've read on my on my christian uh walk and so um you have a lot of other really good stuff that you that you're uh, putting out on uh thorn crown ministries i mean i'm we're so we're very privileged and blessed to have you on the network you have an excellent podcast like i mentioned earlier um, uh, the Radio Lux Lucid, and uh, you have a lot of really good articles, some of which you've published also on the Trinity Foundation. I know you have one about uh, Warren, exit stage left, Warren Warren leaving, and right. and then, yeah, you also have one about the, the Fed, the fight, and the currency, uh, mm -hmm. I think. So you, you've got some excellent stuff on, on the, all of these issues, a very diverse range of, of issues, and so we're very grateful to, you kind of help us to give you, to give people a full, full or biblical worldview and and a, a, really a scripturalist understanding of of all of these things of of the entire 
gamut of 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 thought, not just um, you know uh, church matters. And so um, I'm very grateful to have you on. And I think one of the great things that um, you have a lot of really good articles. I highly recommend people check out the your, the you've you've tackled the immigration issue, um, a lot of these political problems that are going on with the wall, immigration, the Catholic Church's involvement in all of this thing. It's getting vastly um, overlooked by the media, even by, as you say, the the alternative media. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, it's really remarkable. And so we're very grateful to have you on here talking about um, a lot of that stuff. And I'm also very grateful that you've kind of helped to publish some great material on uh, one of the things that I had. It was funny because I wanted to publish an, an article explaining Robbins is teaching of Romans chapter one and what it means, what the things that are made means mm-hmm. in that passage. And now it's really referring to us as God's workmanship and right. not necessarily as, as creation in general, but, but really specifically to, to us as human beings, as God's uh, creation, who, uh, workmanship who are created in, in the image of God. And so I, I was I'm very grateful that you put out that article and um, all of these other excellent uh, content that you've been putting out for us. Well, thank you very much, Carlos, for your kind words. I, I really appreciate that, and I'm, it's you know, it, it's a, an honor, and it's it's really um, uh, very gratifying you know, to hear you you say that they found the book helpful. I mean, as an author, I mean, that's really you know, as a Christian author, I mean, you know, and, and you're an author, you've written things, you do podcasts. I mean, you know, I mean, we're yeah. in, we're, you know, why is it we do this? Well, we want to glorify God and we want to edify his church. We want to help people. I mean, that's, that's, that's really Amen. the reason you and I do what we do. And so, you know, to hear that from you, to hear you say that, that you found uh, those works helpful, that, that means a lot to me. So thank you very much. Yeah, I do think it's an extremely important book. I'm going to encourage people to read it at my church. I'm going to actually teach a historical theology class, and I may, I may even incorporate some of this into the the class when we're talking about modern day controversies. And so, again, I'm very grateful for the book. I really highly uh, encourage. This is, I, I, I want to say it's it's extreme. It's too important of a subject matter to not know about, and so many people don't know about it. And so, I'm grateful that you came out with a this book. Really, really hammers the point and really ties everything together very nicely. And so I wanted to, again, thank you for coming on. There's so much that I want to, there's so much more I want to talk to you about. And I know we're, we're going to have to probably ask you again to come on uh, some more into the podcast. And, uh, but with that being said, did you want to close with anything, anything that you want to leave our listeners with? Uh, really, uh, other than, you know, I think we had a, a really uh, chance to discuss things pretty fully here. I mean, ju- just to say, you know, that that I think if you you really look at, at Knox Seminary and you look at some of the lessons that we've talked about here, you know, about the fact that, you know, the, the, the dangers that the Roman Catholic teaching can can pose, you know, and, and how much of that really is out there in, right. in, uh, in putatively Protestant circles. Uh, that's one big lesson to take away from it. You know, the 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 big lesson, you know, the fact that it's important to be consistent. It's not just, you know, we, we need to be right, but we need to make sure that we are consistent, logically consistent in the way we present our arguments. I mean, you exactly. can have, you know, you you know, take take a lesson from the, you know, the the Board of Knox Seminary. I mean, they 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 did do a lot of things right. And I want to give them credit. I don't want to sit here and say that, you know, that 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 uh, that everything they did was wrong or everything they said was wrong. Unfortunately, they were not consistent. They weren't bold. They weren't as bold as they needed to be. 
be bold for Christ. You know, put on the full armor of God, armor up and have at it. You know, um, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Be consistent in your thinking. Um, and, and again, you know, another lesson from that is, you know, when we see false teaching, you know, it's important uh, to point that out. I mean, the scriptures tell us to do that, right? You know, mark those who, right. um, you know, cause divisions, you know, mark them and, and, and avoid them. You know, we need to refute their teaching and, and we need to, to warn others of them. Um, so, you know, th those are all important lessons. And, and I, I think that those are some like I say, some big takeaways that you can get from the book. And it's, uh, I'm, I'm glad that we had a chance to talk about that today. So thank you, uh, Carlos, for having me on the program today. I, I really have enjoyed our conversation. And uh, as you said, I hope we can uh, can have a chance to do this again sometime. Absolutely. It was a privilege to have you on with us, uh, Brother Steve. And I do look forward to talking to you about other topics, um, you know, talking about John Robbins and just politics, immigration. I mean, there's so much. Actually, um, a little shameless plug, I do... We are um, planning to have you on to talk about the the John MacArthur and Ben Shapiro interview, mm -hmm. and he he made a lot of political uh, commentary there that I really want to get your take on. So I'm really excited and looking forward to having you on, and to talk about that. Yeah, and um, yeah, so I'm definitely um, hoping to schedule that soon with you. And um, I, I'm I just wanted to let our listeners know we can close with this that um, I was right. So the 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 book is on sale at the Trinity Foundation. That's uh, Trinity trinityfoundation.org. And it's on sale for $5.48. So I, you, you really, I cannot stress, I hope if you get one thing, it's to buy this book and read it carefully and look at just how much application there is to our time, uh, modern times. And so um, thanks again for, for coming on, Brother Steve. I know we've been strapped for time uh, a lot and, and we lost this recording. I mean, we recorded this so long ago now. It's been months, yeah. and I was so bummed out that that we couldn't, you know, get it published. And so, but I'm very, very glad that we finally got it done. And I really hope it it blesses our listeners. And um, so, I thank you again. And with that, we'll sign off. And we look forward to, uh, to to having you on next time. All right, Carlos. I look forward to it. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. God bless.